0: Scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 146 and can be found on page 525 in the Black Bible. Psalm 146, starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry."
1: Good morning, Redeemer. Uh, My name is Nick, and I am not one of the pastors here. Um, Though I did consider uh, shaving my head so that I could be in solidarity with our pastors. I feel like there's a a little too much hair for this pulpit. Um, But I I am so excited and honored for the opportunity to preach God's word to you this morning. Uh, When Mark asked if I'd be willing to do this, um, I was... Uh, understanding of the responsibility and the weight of the reality of delivering God's word to you. And so I have prayed and I saw and I've studied and and I hope God shows up here in our midst. Um, I did want to take a second just to, to thank all of you people because uh, my wife and I came to Redeemer... Fourteen years ago this fall, and then a year and a half ago came here to Johnson county and we have just felt so much love and care and connection to the people in this body and we just love you guys so much if we haven 't had a chance to meet, um, please come say hello to me or to Megan we we just love this church body we 've been served by it so much um, and I also wanted to thank Mark and Andrew and a bunch of other people who have just like kicked it into gear the last few days to try and make us have church today. Uh, We, when I got here this morning, I heard the air conditioners outside running, and I thought, wait, that's weird. And then I came in and the lights were on, and praise God that we don't have to uh, stifle in the heat this morning, and you can actually see me, uh, because it gets really dark in here when it's cloudy outside. Um, But before I get into Psalm 146, I just want to ask God to meet us, and then we're going to get into it. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would come and meet us here this morning. The truth is, is that if the lights didn't come on, if this place was empty, you're still worthy of praise and honor and glory and the rocks would praise and the trees would clap because you're deserving of it. So I pray that you would speak to us, In your word this morning, that you would touch the places of our hearts that need to know your nearness and your goodness to us. I pray that you would help me to deliver the words uh, that are true and everlasting. And we thank you. We thank you that you've given us grace upon grace. I pray, God, all of this in Jesus' perfect and precious name. Amen. So uh, we're in Psalm 146, and Psalm 146 is the first of the final five psalms in the book of Psalms, and each of these five psalms starts and ends in the same way. They all have the same phrase, praise the Lord. So you see in verse 1 of 146, praise the Lord, and in verse 10 of 146, praise the Lord. If you went to 147, all the way through 150, they are all structured this way, and when we reach points in the scriptures where there's structure, where there's meter, when there's those types of things, we should ask questions about why it's structured that way. God designed it with a purpose. It's not there just by happenstance. We need to understand why it's there. Now, for, for me, when I look at the, the phrase praise the Lord, I you know, that can kind of just become you know, filler language, worship words that just kind of just like, you could read through the Psalms and it just feels like you're just hit these same kind of phrases over and over again. But this phrase, praise the Lord, that's tra- in the ESV, it's translated this way, is actually a specific Hebrew word that we all know. So you're all Hebrew scholars at this point, you don't realize it, but, you, but this phrase is the word hallelujah. And we have, in history, church history, that word was transliterated into English so that we could all say it. And we kind of have absorbed that word over time. But we have a, sometimes kind of don't really think about what it might actually mean. We just, hey, I'm excited, or thanks, or it's you know, just kind of, a, a, again, a filler Christian word. But the word hallelujah is actually two Hebrew words put together. It's the word hallelu and the word yah. Hallelujah is the Hebrew for let us praise, and Yah is the shortened version of the name, of the personal name, name of God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. So it quite literally means let us praise Yahweh, or praise the Lord, that all caps Lord is, is for Yahweh. So this psalm is bookended by hallelujahs. It's structured in such a way that it says, in the beginning, hallelujah, and in the end, hallelujah, and everything that falls in between helps us understand how we become people that live that way, that say hallelujah in every single season of life. Go with me to verse one. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. The psalmist begins, and it's kind of this like corporate call, almost like the worship leader saying, Hey. Praise the Lord, everybody. It's a response kind of thing. You expect everybody to call it back to them. But then the second line, this second hallelujah, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I love that the psalmist did this because at first we have this corporate call, yes, we should praise God, but also that there's a reality within my soul that I'm not there. I'm missing a part that wants to praise God. There's a part of me that is having trouble saying hallelujah in what I'm experiencing. And so the psalmist is literally calling his own soul to praise God. So as you hear the truths from this psalm this morning, hear it not only as a call for us to corporately worship and sing and praise God together, but also that you would be invited into the places of your own soul that are weary and doubtful and beaten down to learn to say and sing hallelujah, oh my soul. The psalmist continues in verse two, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. This is a proclamation of intent, of faithful commitment to continue in a life of praise no matter what. He says, as long as I live, while I have my being. This kind of language is familiar to us. They're vows, they're, They're similar to wedding vows. And I'm a wedding photographer, like literally was at a wedding yesterday. At this point in my life, I've probably been to 500 or more. And I've sat feet away from couples as they pledge to live their lives together, to love each other, to stay faithful to each other, to stay committed to each other, no matter what. They'll say things like, in sickness and in health, or for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. The psalmist is saying here, he's calling out to the people of God and to God himself, hey, I'm gonna praise the Lord in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, as long as I live, as long as I have my being, it, it, while I am alive, I will praise the Lord. There are promises before the people and before God that come whatever may, will say hallelujah. Hear this, this message isn't a call to find the silver linings in life. It's not to learn to choke down God's medicine because he means it for good. What this message is about is recognizing that there exists a life for the believer to be lived where a person can experience the most difficult things, the hardest trials, the, the greatest turmoils, and still hold on to a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness. When you're in Christ, you can become a person who sings when you're wrongfully imprisoned and worships when war rages around you. How? How do we get faith like that? You and I need a faith that is strong enough, secure enough, and sustained by the Spirit so that we can live through all the experiences of life. Because things can happen and change just like that. The storm comes through, and the tree splits, and the power goes out. But it's more than that. There are moments when the truth is revealed to you, when a secret comes out, when a diagnosis is given. There are rooms in our life. Where we can point to is the moment where everything changed for us. That's the moment where we see if we have the stuff, we have the faith to say hallelujah in spite of it. As we go through the psalm, I want to take you through several rooms of my life where I've experienced these realities. And the first one is an OBGYN exam room which is, I know, I'm a man. Why was I there? That's not, I don't need to see an OBJY. It was my wife's. I, I was invited. And I, if I could paint, and I can't, if I could paint, I could show you exactly what this exam room looks like. I knew where the cabinets were laid out, where the exam table was, a picture of a little boy on the wall, the chair that I sat in where, when the door opened, it like was in front of me. So it was kind of like, surprise, I'm here, you know. I'm sure the doctor's like, wait, what? Um, I don't remember... And this was years ago. I don't remember what we ate that day. I don't remember what we talked about before this appointment. I don't remember what we were wearing. I don't even remember much of anything the doctor said in the appointment except for one sentence. And she said it almost just off the cuff, flippant. She was kind of turning away as she said it, like it was no big deal. And she looked at my wife and she said, you're infertile. And in that one sentence, the entire trajectory of our lives changed. Every conversation we would have over the next several years was about this one reality. We want a baby. We can't have a baby. How do we live through that? How do you live in a room when everything is shaking and you're not destroyed? You're not lost. But thanks be to God that he gave us his word so that we can find out how to be those kinds of people. The psalmist gives us three kind of movements from here that helps us show us how to build a faith like that. The first movement is, hallelujah, he is better than men. Verse three, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. The psalmist recognizes immediately that our first thing when we experience a room like this, when we receive news like that, we think, How do I fix this? How do I manage this situation? How can I get out of this problem? My my wife and I, the first thing we're doing is we're trying to figure out, Hey, can we take supplements? What tests can we do? Are there medicines that we can take? Holistic processes, change our diets, do old wives' tales, whatever we have to do to get the baby that we want. The psalmist says, Don't put your trust in princes. Don't look to the people who you think will give you the thing you want most. And we don't have princes like they did, and we don't live in a monarchy, but what are the princes in our lives? Are they the Instagram influencers or the podcasters or YouTube people? Or they, These are the ones that are speaking to the deepest fears and hopes in our hearts, but they don't go there. They kind of do surface level stuff. They'll say things like, five ways to keep chemicals out of your food or the quickest way to retire young. They're claiming if you only do this one thing, you'll avoid what you're most afraid of. You won't get cancer. You'll, you'll be able to have the financial portfolio you want to have. They're claiming if you get there, you'll get away from the things you're most afraid of and you'll get the things you most hope for. And those things, if we really think about it, they're all circumstantial. They're all temporal. They don't last. Should we use wisdom and information to be smart and be wise and live healthier lives and uh, be financially solvent? Yes, 100%. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is recognizing that our inclination is to trust those things to be everything that we need. And they can't be. Here's the thing. You could put into place every method that someone gives you to avoid getting cancer, but spoiler alert, it doesn't have to be cancer. The psalmist already said, we're going to the dirt. That's our shared di- uh, arrival point. The methods that princes and sons of men promise can't protect you from every calamity think about 2020. Nobody had COVID on their bingo card for that year. We did not know that our lives were going to be upended in that direction. You couldn't have prepared well enough for that reality. You see, once we start thinking and strategizing how to minimize the suffering in our lives and maximize the blessing in our lives, we get to a point where we realize that we're saying to God, you're not in control. I am. I don't need you. Think about, there is one other kind of son of man that I want to I address. And it's not the one that you listen to from outside. It's the one you listen to most. It's yourself. It's that inner running constant dialogue that as soon as something goes wrong, you begin running over the myriad of methods and strategies to get out of it. And you become like the football coach with a whiteboard and you're drawing. If I could go this way, I might avoid this problem. If I go this way, I can avoid that problem. And I can get to where I really want to be. All the while, We're subconsciously proclaiming to God, I got this, I don't need you, I can handle this, I can figure this out. But here's the thing, plan, prepare, be wise, but ultimately you have to rest in God alone. He's the one in control. The Proverbs say, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And what comes of all the plans and strategies of princes and sons of man, as I said, the psalmist has the most tragic diagnosis. His breath departs He returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. Anyone promising to give you salvation from the things you fear most meets the same end. We return to the earth. You might have the best laid plans for this life, but beyond the horizon of this day are hardships we can't predict, difficulties we cannot be prepared for, sufferings that we lay at night hoping won't happen to us. So if you can't stave off the things you fear the most and we can't guarantee that things will stay good, then what? And I'm sure you're thinking like, Nick, the power's on, the air conditioning's running. This is like a major bummer of a Sunday morning sermon. But the the thing is, is that I wanna present to you a a lasting hope, an eternal hope, which takes us to the second movement. Hallelujah, he is a help and a hope. Verse five, verse five, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. I want to take you into another room in my life. This room is a a dining room in an old house in Hyde Park, and my wife, Megan, and I, after finding out that we were infertile, we had been trying for a year to have a baby, and we were in our small group. This small group was a group of people, this is a ragtag bunch of, you know, mid-20s, early-30s people who we would have never assembled ourselves, but the church stuck us in this small group, and we just loved these people. We grew together with them, and at some point, We were realizing that we needed to invite them in because we didn't tell anybody that we were struggling to have a baby because we just thought next month will be the month we get pregnant. Then we don't even have to address this reality that we've lived in. We could just move on from it. But the months kept coming and the negative pregnancy tests kept coming And so we invited them into it, and they loved us, and they prayed for us, and they cared for us, and they preached the gospel to us. And at the time, our small group leader um, was uh, this guy, Josh Murray, uh, bearded, Gimli, Lord of the Rings-looking fellow. And we were sitting at his his dining room table, and I don't remember what we were talking about this particular time, uh, what was happening in our lives uh, outside of this reality. We must have been talking about having a baby at some point, because he looked at me, and he said, what does it say about God if there is no baby? And he didn't mean no baby this month or no baby next month. He meant, what if there's never a baby? What does it say to you about who God is? And I knew the answer up here. I knew it theologically. I knew it what, what the scriptures say, but I, but I had to say it out loud. I had to say it so that I could preach it to my soul because I knew I was struggling to believe And so I looked at him and I said, he is good. Even if there is no baby ever, he is good. But that can only come out of you if you know who this God is before you're in the room when you're asked that hard question. So let me ask you the hard question. If you don't get what you've always hoped for, if you lose what you love the most in this world, what does it say about God? God. In verse 5, the psalmist holds up a contrast between the person who puts their trust in men and the one who puts their trust in God. The former finds no salvation, and the latter will be blessed. And this blessing comes in the form of God being a help and a hope to you. Being a help is a rescuing reality, and being a hope is a promised reality. So see, God is a help We haven't been abandoned here on our own. God didn't kick this thing off and say, good luck, let's see how you figure it out, and when you get here, we'll measure up to see how it went. He is a help to his people because he doesn't leave us in our situations. He's actively working in the universe to accomplish his purposes for our good and his glory. Secondly, God is a hope. He's a hope precisely because there is a promise beyond this life of letdowns and sufferings and sorrows. He's promised us that there is more. Endless, eternal, everlasting, more. So full, so glorious, we cannot even comprehend it. Everlasting life without the sin, without the sorrow, without the suffering that we experience now. It's easy to say stuff like that, in the moment, but how do we actually develop that deep down bottom rooted trust that God can be our help and hope in those rooms when things are falling apart, that we can actually praise him when the clouds are over us and the deck is stacked against us? How do we establish a foundation that allows for us to be in the hard rooms of our life and say hallelujah? The psalmist gives us four characteristics over these verses six and seven that are a bedrock for why we can build our trust in him. First, he is the creator. He made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. We need to know that God is the one who created all things and because of this he's not a being who is struggling against forces that are equal or surpassing in skill or strength to him. He's not in the back room working out preparing for battle. He's not getting a bead of sweat on his brow. He doesn't tremble. He's not wringing his hands in worry or fear. He doesn't run to a war room and assemble his best people to come up with a strategy to deal with what's coming for you. He sits in authority over all of it. If he were to just remove his sustaining word, everything would cease to be. So when faced with hardship, we can say, hallelujah, he made all things. Second characteristic, he is faithful. He's the one who keeps faith forever. If God fails to uphold even one of his promises, if he breaks under pressure, we have no reason to trust that he, we won't perish the next time a storm comes through. Whether your car breaks down or the roof leaks or your chronic pain flares up again, the trees crack or a bat flies into your bedroom tonight, it can feel like the only thing we can bank on in this life is that things will fail and things will go wrong. We say things like, when it rains, it pours. We shrug our shoulders and let down becomes our operating standard. We're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And yet, God has said there's a blessing for us when our help and our hope is in him. And that blessing is actually living securely in a shaking world. We're unshaken by it. It's the blessing of having a firm footing when everything is rocking around us because he keeps Faith forever. Believe this, he's come through. He won't let you down. He delivers on his promises. This entire book is a record of God making good on his word. He's sturdy enough to put your life on. So when he says, I'm coming back, I'm going to make things right, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye, you can trust it. And in suffering, we can say, hallelujah, he keeps faith forever. Our third one, he is just. He's the one who executes justice for the oppressed. If God is not just, we have no ultimate hope that all the scales will be balanced. When our lives are struck by the torrents of suffering and sorrow, we can hold on to the hope that he takes account of it all. Elsewhere, the psalmist says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He is keeping score. He knows every single test that said not pregnant. He knows every malicious word that was spoken against you. He knows the mornings that you wake up in the cloud of depression and struggle to live your life. He knows it all and he keeps the score. And because of his righteous standard, we have the justification to call things that we experience evil or wrong. Because we have the objective universal standard of God's word to compare our life against. The secular person can say until they're blue in the face that this shouldn't happen, or I think that this is evil, or this is wrong, you shouldn't do that. But the universe can only respond back in silence, in a rhetorical so what? Good, evil, it's all ultimately meaningless in a universe without a just God. Because in a million years, we'll all be gone, and your suffering and your hardship will have meant nothing. Yet, if there is a God who is just and is outside of us, who has defined the standard of righteousness and justice by his word, then we can actually rest knowing that when it seems like injustice is going to prevail against us, God has the final word. He is keeping score and he will settle the score so that evil is not ultimately prevailing. Justice and goodness will stand victorious and we can pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And say, hallelujah, he is just. A fourth characteristic, he is merciful. He gives food to the hungry. Consider this for a second. God could be the creator of all things. He could be faithful to keep his word. He could be just to his righteous standard. But if he's all three of these things and not merciful, we don't have any good news. Because if we're honest here, if he's keeping score... We know we've got some pretty gnarly marks against us. The score is not on our side. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're worthy of that same righteous score keeping being brought against ourselves. Yet, if he is a merciful God who cares to feed the hungry, if he's a God who considers the rumbling tummies of his people, it shows that he's a God who will not leave us in our situation. And by his unmerited grace in Jesus Christ, he can give you mercy too. What's your situation? What room have you been living in? He'll care for you there. He'll have mercy on you there. So you can say, hallelujah, he is merciful. He made it all. He'll keep his word. He'll settle the score and he'll meet you in it. That is who he is. It's unchanging. His character is not dependent on our circumstances. That means when we look at the state of our life and say, this proves God doesn't exist. This proves God doesn't care about me. We aren't really recognizing that his character surpasses all of those realities. His character is true outside of what's happening in your life right now. That means that he has the necessary character to be what we need to sustain us through the circumstances of our lives. So we can say, hallelujah, he's my help and my hope. He's a help because he walks alongside us in the midst of our sufferings and sorrows. Because even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, you are with me. And when you're in the valley, he's a hope. He's the sun over the mountaintops, promising that we don't stay in the valley forever. It takes us to our third movement. Hallelujah, he loves us. Verse seven, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widows and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. I want to take you to one more room. And this room is the uh, apartment above a carriage house in Hyde Park, and it is actually the, first home of Mark and Rochelle Crowe. They were newly married, and they were now our new small group leaders after the the Murrays had moved away. And we were there for Thanksgiving meal, and everybody showed up with sides and desserts, and we got there, and people started eating the sides and started eating the desserts, because we come to realize this turkey was not going to be cooked this Thanksgiving, and probably not next Thanksgiving either. It was frozen like a rock. Um, But I realized there was some rustling going on as people decided to depart. And I said, hey, wait, real fast before you go. This is what we do at Thanksgiving. Andrew mentioned this last week. We say we're thankful for stuff. We want to express gratitude. Megan and I have been going through several years of infertility at this point, And I just wanted to thank these people, the only people in our lives who knew what we were walking through, that they loved us and cared for us, grieved for us every time the, the test came back negative. Uh, and I just wanted to thank them. But more than that, they prayed for us, for, for us to have a baby, for God to meet us in our, in our season of darkness. And that became our prayer. We said, God, we would love to have a baby. Please let us have a baby. But more than that, meet us in this place. Because even if there is a baby, it won't satisfy all those parts of us. It won't meet every need that we have. The baby can't be all the things that we want So be that for us. And I said, man, thank you, because God did that. He met us in that season. He was near to us. He showed us his grace and his mercy and his love. And after I said that, I said, but God also gave us another gift. And we're going to have a baby. And there was celebration and excitement and embrace and tears. And we were grateful for it. God acted. He showed up. So you can say hallelujah because you know his character is true even when your circumstances don't show it, but that's not it. You can say hallelujah because he shows up. The, there are ways that God shows up in love for you in those places. The reality is, is, yes, God gave us a baby, but even if there never was one, he was a help and a hope to us. He gave us the ability to sing hallelujah in our darkest season. In the end, he gave us three beautiful children. And if you're in this room experiencing the pains of longing and loss, he loves you. He has not left you. He is a help and a hope to you. Verses 7 through 9 each hold an active word of God's love for us. It's not just flowery poetic language. This is how God actually comes in, into our lives and loves us. If you are in Christ, these are promises for you. First, the Lord liberates, He sets the prisoners free. He is bringing freedom to captives. Many have experienced, or we're all at one point in our life experiencing, chains of bondage and captivity. If that's addiction or anxiety or depression or habitual sin or torment, if you're living in a state of captivity, God liberates prisoners. His love brings freedom. There is real freedom for you in God's love. Second, the Lord illuminates. He opens the eyes of the blind. He's illuminating the darkness within our hearts with the light of His truth. He's showing us where sin exists so we can snuff it out and become more mature in Him. He opens our eyes to see the ways that we're being led away from His truth. Like Colossians says, He's helping us to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit. God illuminates the darkness the Lord restores. He lifts up those who are bowed down. Bowed down here is not like royalty bowed down. This is, I'm bowed down because life is terrible. Life is hard and it has brought me to the floor. He says he lifts them up. Have you been bowed down by loss? What about just the mundane pummeling of life, the monotony? Has that brought you low? He lifts up those who are bowed down. And you can't lift someone off the ground without getting down yourself. He stoops down to lift you up. The Lord restores. He'll lift you up. The Lord loves. He loves the righteous. He is actively loving his people. He doesn't resent you. He doesn't begrudgingly handle you. He doesn't hurt us like cats. He doesn't roll his eyes at you. He doesn't do a deep... Sigh because he has another mess to clean up. In Christ, he loves you, he adores you, he cherishes you, he treasures you, he glorifies his children, he loves the righteous. The Lord protects, he watches over the sojourners. He is actively watching over and protecting his children from the plans of those who would seek to steal, kill, and destroy his people. And as we live as sojourners in a broken world, we can take heart knowing that he protects us as we come and as we go. But more than that, if he's brought you into his family, nothing can pluck you from his hand. He will watch over you. He will protect you. He will make sure you enter his rest. The Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. God has a unique and specific care for people who have experienced the greatest losses in life. That includes the widows and the fatherless, but not just them. He doesn't just uphold widows and fatherless. This care is for the women who can't have babies, it's for parents who've buried their children, it's for the mothers who have miscarriages, and it's for the parents whose children have gone astray. It's for children whose parents may as well have abandoned them. He upholds, he upholds you. The Lord thwarts the way of the wicked, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This isn't just that God stops bad guys and evildoers from doing things to you. He's actually inverting the plans of the wicked against you and turning them for your good and for his glory. He'll frustrate their plans ultimately. None of them will succeed. Even if it feels like all is lost, he will bring their plans to ruin. And maybe you feel like the plans of the wicked have prospered over you. Your reputation has been maligned. Your character called into question. God is not done yet. He has the final word. And and on top of this, he's thwarting the thing within our flesh, the way of the wicked that still exists here that wants us to desire things other than him. He empowers us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly within us. The psalmist, when he comes to the end in verse 10, he makes a final proclamation, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. You see, the Lord is better than men. The Lord is a help and a hope. The Lord loves us and the Lord will reign forever. This generational reality points to the truth that beyond this this experience that we're having right now, God will be with our, our kids and their kids and their kids just in the same way he has been generationally in the past. They will experience their own rooms of suffering and hardship and turmoil and he'll meet them there. He'll be their help. He'll be their hope. I want us to consider one one more room, and it's this room, this church room, and as we become our own church body, our pastors are going to stand up here and deliver hundreds, if not thousands of sermons to us over the, the next years, and they'll preside over baptisms and baby dedications and weddings, and we'll sit right here. And we'll clap our hands and we'll say hallelujah and thank God for all that He's done because He's worthy of it, because those are amazing things. But there will also be a day when we trade the baptismal tub for a casket, and our pastors will preside over the funerals of our brothers and sisters. And in here, we will become a people who say hallelujah in the same way when the waters of baptism splash on this carpet as we will when we say hallelujah when the tears of the bereaved fall in the same places. God will have given us a faith that is sustained through every season hear the good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the fulfillment and payment of proof that we can trust in these true realities. Jesus is the only prince, the prince of peace, in whom we can put our trust. He is the true son of man, the only one in whom salvation can be found, who was delivered into the hands of men. Jesus's breath departed, but he did not stay in the earth. And even by the very effort of sinful men and the powers of darkness, his plans did not perish. They persevered and they prevailed. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus is the true help of God, not sitting back and asking others to do his bidding, but he enters the world and empties himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is the true help of God, not sitting back and asking others to do his bidding, but entering the world and emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. He is the hope of God. The point of all things is for him, and he is the fulfillment of our present and future hope. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. He is not only the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus keeps faith forever. He never fails his people, even when he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had all the justice of God's righteous judgment poured out on himself so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. And he will return one day to judge the world. Jesus is the one who feeds the hungry soul and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set up liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus lifts up the lowly and the brokenhearted and says to us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Jesus' love is for the righteous. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus watches and protects his people sojourning in this world who desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God, for he's prepared for us a city, a new home, Jesus upholds and sustains the widows and the orphans, gives religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Jesus thwarts the way of the wicked. He turns their plans upside down in the most radical way possible. He takes people with hearts of stone and gives them hearts of flesh. If you sit in this room and call yourself a Christian, he thwarted the way that you had before. None of us get here by our own good efforts or good intentions. It is only by his mercy and his grace that he flipped on our heads the things that we wanted to do originally. He takes enemies and makes them sons and daughters. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to his kingdom. As we walk in this life, inevitably toward rooms and places where things will crash against us, the torrents will seem to destroy us, may God give us the faith that is rooted and built up in him, established just as we were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, as Colossians says. All the while when darkness surrounds us. By the grace of God in Christ, we can say, hallelujah, he is better than men. Hallelujah, he is my help and my hope. Hallelujah, he loves me. And hallelujah, he reigns forever. If you hope in Christ this morning, these are for you. These blessings are for you. Trust on him. Put away holding on to the hopes of other things because they will not deliver. But God will deliver this morning. He will show up. He'll be with you. He'll be the, the sustenance that you need. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you didn't leave us in our estate, but you came low, even to the point of death, so that we could be near to you and to know you. And as we move to the communion liturgy after this, I pray, God, that you would show us, show us the ways that we've put hope and trust in things that cannot sustain, that perish ultimately building us a strength of faith by your spirit to sustain through life's hardships and trials that even in the darkest moments we'll sing hallelujah. You're worthy of it. You're glorious and you're good. We ask it all in Jesus' perfect, precious name. Amen.